Hey folks, uh, we're still at RxJS Live and uh, I'm talking to Hannah Howard. Hannah, do you just wanna introduce yourself real quick, let people know who you are and then we can talk a little bit about your talk and about RxJS? Yeah. Yeah, so, uh, well, I'm just a developer person, uh, but I work on uh, sort of all parts of the stack um, for our consulting company. Um, in particular, I'm really enthusiastic about RxJS, uh, particularly in the use of front-end application development, um, and uh, have been so enthusiastic that I've written about, sort of writing a bunch of tools to integrate Rx with React and uh, to also model some architectural patterns in, in Rx. So, yeah. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. Great. So what do you, you said you work for a consultancy. So what, what do you folks do there and how does that all work? So um, I work for a, a company called Carbon5. Uh, we're a product development uh, agency. We, we, we work with basically everyone um, from like small like MVP type startups to like I've worked on uh, helping the gap with their inventory systems. So like um, and we we basically just we're both like design product and uh, and development more um, uh, developments kind of our biggest uh, discipline, but we, you know, help people make products, um, whatever it is that they need. Uh, and we work in kind of like everything. So, yeah. Gotcha. So um you gave a talk this morning and, and I missed it because I was out here getting checked in and everything. Um, do you want to just give a brief, uh, I guess, elevator pitch for your talk, what you talked about and things like that? Yeah. So my my talk was focused on how to actually architect like full scale applications uh, using RxJS, particularly in the case of um, uh, front end applications. Uh, we uh, at Carbon5, we really, really like RxJS um, and, and we like our actually all the Rx libraries and we've actually used it on quite a bit of, uh, you know, production code uh, to kind of like provide essentially a, a way to model state on, uh, on the front end. Uh, in, essentially is a replacement for the role that like Redux would play in a um, in a React application. Um, uh, we've also done a lot of Rx stuff with Swift as well. So it's like, you know, what the, the patterns actually emerge are cross language. So that's kind of cool. Nice. That makes sense. And uh, yeah, our iOS show, iFreaks, they've talked a lot about uh, Rx Swift and, and things like that. So yeah, it's, it's definitely interesting how it's spreading and it's also interesting to see how it's spread in arenas like functional programming so you get reactive programming and functional programming and and, and how that all plays and, and that's really really interesting in fact um you and i met briefly at codebeam in san francisco i was there as kind of a media partner went to the speaker dinner i think we chatted there for a few minutes and then at the conference um but yeah so 
I guess I guess I'm wondering in your experience, how do these ideas come together? You know, the, the functional programming, because it sounds like you do a lot of Erlang. Sure. Yeah, and, uh, you know, and then you've also got, you know, the reactive programming with RxJS. And there, there's some reactive programming ideas in Erlang and Elixir. So, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, functional programming is like most like simple form is that you write your program with ideally mostly pure functions that, you know, don't mutate uh, data in the function. Like they take value inputs and they produce outputs so that immutable uh, property is kind of the, the, the kernel. Um, but uh, from that, there's what, what emerges is that there's a whole bunch of patterns that you end up using to uh, use these functional, to use pure functions, but still get all the properties you're going to need in a sort of like side effectful um, uh, environment, which is pretty much all environments. Um, and in fact, like, it's really interesting because a lot of the like concepts, part of my talk uh, was like this sort of like skating over of a bunch of Haskell concepts, not without mentioning the word Haskell, because like I'm not what functional programming, particularly the stuff that gets close to like algebra is very like the abstract algebra stuff gets. I've found that people are very like intimidated by it. Um, but the there's a concept that ties a lot of these things together, which is like you have your pure functions and then you have something you wrap them in right and like there's these different types of wrappers and, and once you start thinking about the wrappers uh, i call them contexts in in my talk they're kind of like everywhere like and like you have like an array was really just a wrapper around a value that's a collection right and a promise is a wrapper around a value that's asynchronous and like and you know an observable is a wrapper around a value that'll change over time and like once you start seeing that it's like kind of hard to unsee it um and uh yeah and that's something that I talk a lot about as a base for thinking about building applications um, in uh, in RxJS. And then the, the sort of add-on to that is then how all those different little uh, observables tie together. Um, and it's not so much like a specific uh, prescription as something that that we've noticed has emerged over the over time in building these applications, which is that like your observables start to look like a graph. Um, we call it the signal graph because you essentially have like each node is an observable that's emitting these signals, right? And then other nodes are getting signals from the uh, from the base observables and then they're computing new kinds of state. And you just have to kind of like, you know, the, the challenge is always getting like all the little Rx operators, right? So that you get the properties you're going to want, particularly if you're dealing with state. Um, but uh but yeah, it's kind of a cool model and it's a, a visual way of thinking about it that we actually work with quite a bit. So very cool. Well, I'm going to encourage people to go look at your talk uh, from RxJS Live. I'm assuming, too, that your talks from like Codebeam and some of the other places that you've spoken at are also out there. So people they, can go check that. Yeah, they are. for sure. Um, so if, if people want to reach out to you uh, and ask questions or see what you're working on or things like that, is, is there kind of a place where they can go to find that information? Yeah. So, um, uh, I mean, you can for sure find me on the Twitters. Uh, my handle is at tech girl wonder. Um, uh, and then, uh, the, the work that I'm doing with RxJX, uh, is all, um, lives in the GitHub organization, Rx react, <laughs> um, uh, which I was able to get, even though I don't have the, the NVM package, uh, Rx react, all my stuff is under a namespace Rx react. So I'm still working on it. There's a library called signal to model the signal graph. Um, and I'm working and I was really, really, really trying to get out a new version of that. That would be super duper awesome. But you know, <laughs> not quite for this time. So, yeah. 
Good deal. Well, thanks, Hannah. Hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood, and I just launched my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. It's up on Amazon. We self-published it. I would love your support. If you want to go check it out, you can find it there, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. Have a good one. Max out. Hey, folks, we're here at RxJS Live and uh, talking to Ben Lesh. Now, Ben, do you want to just introduce yourself real quick? Uh, my name is Ben Lesh, obviously. Uh, I currently work at Citadel Securities. Uh, right not but a few months ago, I was working at Google on the Angular team. And prior to that, I was at Netflix. Um, I am the lead on RxJS right now. So I'm on the RxJS core team. Uh, I've been working on that for the last four or five years. Nice. I think we, uh, when I talked to Jay Phelps, he's also working at Citadel Security. So, right. yeah, good deal. Um, so, yeah, so you gave a talk yesterday, I believe, and talked a little bit about the future of RxJS. Oh, yeah. uh, do you want to just uh, kind of give us a rundown about what your talk was and kind of give us a preview of what's coming? Uh, sure. So, uh, the talk, like, I kind of started off with talking about some of the history of RxJS. Uh, RxJS started off uh, as a JavaScript project that we converted to TypeScript like 1.8. Uh, and over the years, there's been a lot of pain around uh, getting types uh, properly through RxJS, especially after we introduced pipeable operator, operators, because um, uh, TypeScript doesn't do a particularly great job with functional libraries. Uh, and so, but now it's getting better and better and better. But in order to improve our typings, we need to make some breaking changes uh, to type signatures. Uh, and that means that uh, this next version, uh, Rx, RxJS 7, will mostly be focused on like updating those types and making those breaking changes we need to make so people can get better type inference out of Rx. And also the 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 other bit that we're doing in 7 is we're trying to deprecate uh, different signatures that take schedulers where people don't really need to pass them in and these sorts of things and provide uh, code transformations to help people move off of those deprecated things ahead of getting to version 8. Uh, so people will be ready for version 8 because version 8 is going to be a rewrite of the library to try to make things smaller, uh, reduce some of the API service area and uh, make the the bundler, the, the bundled footprint of Rx in people's apps like a, a lot smaller. Some of the some of the experimental versions that we have uh, show like a reduction of almost like 60 percent in the size. So but without sacrificing performance, of course, that's that's another important goal. So it's seven and eight in a nutshell, what we've got coming up. Um, timeline for version seven, uh, we'll have an alpha out in the next week or so, but uh, probably get to beta over the course of the next month, maybe two months. Alpha is, is actually already really stable. Um, Google's using it. So Google actually helps us vet our, our what's in master, uh, which is currently seven alpha. But the reason it's still alpha is because there's more breaking changes to types that we want to introduce before we move it on to beta. But the nice thing is we have Google kind of vetting those things for us. So it's it's something people can start using. As soon as it comes out, I wouldn't use it in production because we are going to introduce breaking changes. So if you have CI or something like that, you might see some breaking changes just magically appear in your build if you are using the alpha version. But we'll be through that pretty quickly. There's no definite timeline on version 8 because it's dependent on whether or not we can get all the trans code transformations done during version 7 minor releases. Uh, so whenever we have all those done, then we move on to version eight. I started working on this stuff for version eight more than a year ago. So I'm pretty anxious to, to get, to get to that, but, um, we need to take a really measured approach, uh, with RX because so many people use it now. Uh, we can't just, we can't break people too fast. Um, well, we're not going to break people. We're going to stick to but like, we can't get too far ahead of people and let people fall behind 
Uh, so we need to, you know, take a more measured approach and make sure people can catch up. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, uh, it's interesting too. You're talking about this measured approach and, um, yeah, you see different technologies make a major leap forward, you know, because the, you know, the, the code's written and a lot of the features are kind of figured out. And so they move forward and then, yeah, it creates all this work for people to get caught up. And so, yeah, it, it makes sense to help people kind of step along. Um, now Google testing out the alpha version, is that something that came out of you being on the Angular team or? Um, not necessarily. So Google was using RxJS before I ever worked at Google. And uh, what they have a process internally there for third-party libraries where they pull in the third-party library from a source. Uh, and they had been pulling it out of RxJS Master. Uh, and so what happens is they pull in the TypeScript code. And then internally at Google, they build everything from scratch uh, through Blaze, which is their build tool, and this giant monorepository. So everyone uses the same version of Rx. And what they'll do is they'll essentially start uh, a PR internally that says, okay, run this process that takes all the TypeScript files from RxJS master, puts them in here, and then tries to build every project inside of Google that uses this, that has this as a, a, de a dependency. And so thousands and thousands and thousands of uh, apps and tests and whatever are run against the code. And, you know, if you, if you break a few things, it's, it's probably tolerable and they can fix it internally. But if, if we break a whole bunch of stuff, then they're going to report back to us just via cooperation and say, hey, you know, this, this one change you made broke all of these things. And we, we reinvestigate, like, whether or not we need that change or how we can do it better or something like that. So, but it, was, it wasn't really born for me being on the Angular team. Uh, while I was on the Angular team, most of the time I was working on just Angular related stuff, nothing RxJS related, but it's a similar process to what Angular uses. And uh, it's definitely related to Angular in that it's a dependency of Angular, uh, but it also has just a lot to do with how Google kind of uh, deals with third-party software and some cooperation between myself and them. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I'm curious then, you know, you're the lead on RxJS. It sounds like you were working for Netflix and then Google, and now you're at uh, Citadel Securities. So do they pay you to work on RxJS then at all? Or is this mostly what you do when you get home from work? Or how, how does that all work out then? Because you also mentioned that on the Angular team, you were mostly working on Angular stuff and not necessarily RxJS stuff. So the, the short answer is no, nobody pays me to work on RxJS. Um, uh, I've, I've obviously there's, there's some gain to be had in it because, you know, you get a decent reputation and it helps you in your career or whatever. But you no, know, there, I mean, there were times where I did stuff that were, that was RxJS related at Google, uh, at Netflix, I was paid to work on it, but like not the whole time I was at Netflix, like a lot of, a lot of the time I was working on other stuff. Uh, and it was like kind of just a side project that they allowed me to do. So, uh, it's never, ever been my main job function for sure. <laughs> And now uh, that I'm at Citadel, so I actually work from home most most of the time. And uh, one like one week a month, I go up to Chicago or whatever. But that what that does mean is I don't have a commute, uh, so that cuts compared to what I was doing in California, like three hours out of my day. <laughs> so so I've got I've got a lot more time with my kids, and I've got a lot more time to attempt to work on uh, RxJS and and try to stay on top of things. Um, I also worked a lot of long hours at Google, which uh, I think prevented me from contributing a, a bit to, to RxJS. So like we're going to see more contributions out of me uh, in the in, definitely in the short term and probably in the long term as well. But yeah, no one's paying me for it. I wish, <laughs> but no. So when should we expect to see um, RxJS 7 beta uh, release candidate and then final and then version 8? 
so it, it should happen fairly rapidly. The, the real, the, the challenge is going to be, you know, trying to iron out all of the typing changes that are necessary to get us to beta, uh, because those will be where the breaking changes show up. And then, um, but there's no breaking changes to runtime. Like anybody who's using just the JavaScript version is not even going to notice. They're not even going to blink. It's, it's mostly just that there's, there's a few very minor uh, edge casey changes to runtime behavior, but most of it is most of it's just changing to the, the changes to the typings uh, themselves. So once that's in the beta should should be relatively short. And I don't even know if we'll go to release candidate and then go or just go straight from beta to, to release because it's not it's not like a complete rewrite or something. It's it's uh, it's a little bit more of a subtle change, uh, if that makes sense. So I know that RxJS is used pretty heavily by Angular. Um, do you see it used as widely or heavily in projects from other arenas in the JavaScript space? I see it used all over the place. Well, of course, you know, being the RxJS, like I work on RxJS, like most of the things that people present to me have something related to RxJS in it. Uh, I can say that in like workshops that I run through Rx Workshop, uh, I'll have probably... Um, like more, sometimes more than half of the people will be React developers. Uh, so I definitely see it. Uh, I definitely see a lot of it. I wouldn't say like when you say widespread, um, it's relative. Like when you look at Angular, like 99% of the apps will have ArcGIS in it because of how like Angular's kind of adoption of it as a first class thing. Uh, with React, it's, it's probably a smaller percentage, but like React's also got a bigger slice of the pie right now. So... It's it's intermittent. Like I, I see it a lot. You used a lot in um, node-based tools, uh, build tooling, uh, other things like that. It's it's a common dependency amongst um, other things that are common dependencies, which is which is kind of interesting. Uh, that are just node-based modules and stuff. So uh, it does have a lot of broad use cases. Uh, there are some very very popular apps and projects out there, like um, you know Slack and YouTube and. PlayStation and some of these other things that use it as an open source library. And you can see this because you can go and see the open source licenses that they use. But, uh, you know, none of, and none of those are Angular. Uh, they're like Polymer and React and things like that. So it, it is widely used for a variety of things uh, outside of, of Angular. Uh, but I would say nowhere has the like the 90% of people do this uh, scenario like Angular does. So the last question I have is if people want to reach out to you about contributing or they have ideas or they have questions about RxJS or they want to learn more about reactive programming or any of these things, um, is there a good place for people to figure out how to reach out to you? Uh, yeah. So, uh, I'm at Ben Lesh on Twitter, like, uh, DMing me on Twitter is the easiest way to make sure that I see what, what it is. Uh, you can go on and file issues and, and things like that and GitHub and at me, but like, honestly, my GitHub notifications are destroyed all the time from like old things that people comment on to just like me getting notifications on everything. So I'm not likely just to see an issue just because someone put it in there, um, or added me on it. So it's, it's, uh, DMs on Twitter uh, are the best way. And, you know, if, if, even if the DM is just like, Hey, look at this issue on GitHub, that's, that's a good way to, to get me to do those things. Uh, the one thing I will ask people though, is if you have a question about how to do something on stack or on, on, uh, in RxJS, like post the question on stack overflow and get it answered because then other people 
that want that answer can find it via Google search or something. Because if you just ask me and I, I answer it privately, that does not, it's not helping every, anybody else. So, uh, and it's also not a great forum for doing that in like Twitter DMs or whatever. Uh, and I can be slow to respond sometimes because I'm busy, but I always do respond to people who DM me on Twitter for sure. Great. Well, thanks, Ben. One of the biggest pain points that I find as I talk to people about software is deployment. It's really interesting to have the conversations with people where it's, I don't want to deal with Docker. I don't want to deal with Kubernetes. I don't want to deal with setting up servers. I don't, you know, all of these different things. And in a lot of ways, DevOps has gotten a lot easier. And in a lot of ways, DevOps has also kind of embraced a certain amount of culture around applications, the way we build them, the way we deploy them. And I've really felt for a long time that developers need to have the conversations with DevOps or adopt some form of DevOps so that they can take control of what they're doing and really understand when things go to production, what's going on so that they can help debug the issues and fix the issues and find the issues when they go wrong and help streamline things and make things better and slicker and easier so that they'll more generally go right. So we started a podcast called Adventures in DevOps. And I pulled in one of the hosts from one of my favorite DevOps shows, Nell Shamrell Harrington from The Food Fight Show. And we got things rolling there. And so this is more or less a continuation of The Food Fight Show, where we're talking about the things that go into DevOps. So if you're struggling with any of these operational type things, then definitely check out Adventures in DevOps. And you can find it at adventuresindevopspodcast.com. All right, folks, uh, we're still at RxJS Live, and I'm talking to Sam Julien and Kim Maida. And uh, yeah, they just gave a talk. Uh, it was uh, Rx Watt. And uh, yeah, it, it was really good. Talked about some of the stuff that kind of trips people up. Um, but before we dive into that, do both of you just want to introduce yourselves real quick, let people know who you are? I'm Sam Julien, and I'm an Angular GDE, and I'm in DevRel at Auth0. I am Kim Maida, and I actually have like the same credentials as Sam. I'm a DevRel at Auth0, and I'm a Google Developer Expert. Very cool. So um, what inspired this talk? So I know a lot of people have trouble learning RxJS, and I had a friend actually who came up to me very, very recently, and he had a scenario, and I was like, RxJS will solve all of your problems. And he came back to me, and he was like, RxJS did not solve all of my problems. It was really, really hard. Uh, so taking sort of experiences that people were having issues with learning, I think, and sort of addressing those and talking about tips to help people get over those issues, I think is just a, an important topic. Yeah. And I've had the same experience of over the years learning RxJS. And I think because RxJS got, got swept up into Angular, um, it was sort of assumed that people would be able to pick it up really quickly. But the fact is that it's a really difficult set of concepts to wrap your head around and a difficult set of vocabulary to learn. And so we just wanted to sort of lightheartedly um, admit to the fact that it's really hard to learn, but also do it in a way that we give people some advice on how to how to get into it and how to learn it better. Yeah, that makes sense. So, you know, I, I don't want to rehash the whole talk, but where do you find that people get, I, I guess, tri tripped up the most? <laughs> I think understanding what an observable is in the first place has gives people a lot of issues. And I think some of it is problematic because a lot of times the first example when they're doing something like trying to learn ang the 
you know, most more recent Angular and also learning ArcGIS at the same time, the first example they usually come across is like an HTTP call. And traditionally, we don't think of an HTTP call as something that is a stream, something that continuously gives you data over time. You get like you're like one and done most times. And Introducing people that way to observables can make it a challenging journey for them to sort of figure out where to go from there when they do actually face rea real reactivity. Um, and also the terminology, like learning the terminology, learning about the operators. I think there's so many operators, people kind of get very overwhelmed by just the sheer amount of choice and they're afraid of doing something wrong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that last basically phrase, you know, they're afraid of doing something wrong. I think that trips up a lot of people. And so it's, it's not even just, um, you know, yeah, like you said, there are a lot of operators, there are a lot of things going on, there's new ter terminology, I don't completely understand what this does. But yeah, and I'm afraid to get it wrong. You know, I'm afraid to make a mistake, you know, whether it be, it's because I look bad, or it's because, you know, I, I mess up the code for my uh, teammates or whatever, right? Um, there are a lot of reasons for that. So yeah, and you explained it all really well as far as like, oh, I get that idea. Okay, I get it. I understand this piece. Um, were there things that you had to pull out of the talk or things that you thought about putting in that you didn't? Well, there's just like a ton of content. There's a ton of things that people have trouble with. I think we tried to just distill it down to the larger categories. So there's a lot of examples where of you know specific operators that people just have a lot of trouble with, but we wanted to sort of address it as like, Choosing an operator in general is is can be difficult, but if you understand where like the context is, then you it just becomes easier to do. I think the only the only specific thing we we had originally wanted to talk about all the combination operators like switch map, concat map, exhaust map, like all of them, uh, and we just realized that that was just going to take up too much time, and so that's why we distilled it down to just like one or two things, but. That was probably the only area. But then you ended up talking about that in another talk, which was amazing. So we, we didn't even we didn't even need to, to talk about it at all. Right. We had people pulling double duty, huh? So I guess the other thing that uh, I want to just talk briefly about is, um, you know, we come to this conference and no pun intended, but I've, I've made the analogy before that talking about RxJS is like talking about the pipes in your system, right? And uh, so it's like, oh, look, now we have galvanized steel. Great. You know, and so um, it, it's it's a really it, it's a solution. But, you know, people have promises and and other things that solve in some cases the same problem. And so people start getting caught up with, OK, so why? Why RxJS, right? You, you, you've got a PVC pipe that'll carry water or a galvanized steel pipe that'll carry water. So, um you know, do you see people adopting RxJS more in the future or are people going to stay where they're comfortable, where they have something that kind of works and doesn't hurt too much to use? Um, you know, do we see, do you see a movement toward RxJS at all? I do. Honestly, I've been recommending it to people and sort of but like I touched on in my talk when I recommended it to someone. And I said, all of your problems will be solved by using this. And he just had like a huge barrier trying to grasp the concepts and then he was overwhelmed by the resources and he didn't know where to start. And I think just as we refine those resources, it'll be easier and easier to recommend to people that they 
use RxJS to solve problems because people who are familiar with RxJS can see these complex issues that people are trying to solve with reactive UIs and nested data calls and all of this type of thing. And as we get more resources, as more people go out and recommend it, I think there will be greater adoption like across frameworks and, and in JavaScript in general. Yeah, a Angular sort of forced the issue. And so it sort of caused all the Angular developers to need to learn it. But you're seeing more and more people in like the React system and things like that start to use it. So I'm hoping that like with any other programming paradigm, I was going to say new, but Rx has been around for decades almost. So, but with any programming paradigm, you sort of see a swing in one direction and hopefully it'll just kind of come back and for reactive UIs, people will start to use it more and more. Yeah, that makes sense. I guess the last question that I have before I ask you how people can get a hold of you or, you know, find what you're working on is um, at Auth0, you know, in, in your work day to day, what what uses are you putting RxJS to? Uh, so recently at Auth0, we produce quick starts for people to integrate the Auth0 platform with different technologies. So one of the technologies that is very, very popular is Angular. And we recently released a SPA SDK for authentication, authenticating JavaScript apps with new best practices from the IETF. And the thing is that library is actually written with async await. So when you try to use the library with Angular, which is reactive, it's based on RxJS, then you run into a lot of issues because the sort of universal implementation for general JavaScript is use async await. So what I did was I rewrote our uh, authentication tutorial for Angular in the quick start to use RxJS. And there was a, sort of a lot of um, like from in it, there was a lot of concat map and but it worked really elegantly and it works across the Angular platform very, very smoothly with reactive programming. And so that was that was definitely a really fun like exercise to do. And now the implementation that we can recommend to people is idiomatic and canonical for Angular, which uh, gives people a better developer user experience. All right. So I guess the question now is if people want to reach out for help or ideas or see what you're working on or anything like that, where are you online? I'm just at Sam Julien on Twitter. I have samjulien.com. And then on the Auth0 blog, I have a bunch of articles on there that people can read, um, including a bunch on Angular and RxJS and things like that. And that's that's pretty much it for me. So I can mostly be reached on Twitter. I'm Kim Maida on Twitter. It's super original, but easy to find. Uh, and other, my like personal website's on my Twitter bio. So really Twitter's the, the best way. All right. Good deal. Thanks. All right, folks, we are here at RxJS live. Um, we just talked to Sam and Kim, but Kim gave another talk. And so uh, we're going to talk about that for a minute. And it's one of those hot topics in the JavaScript framework arenas, which is state management, right? There you know, the joke used to be there's a new JavaScript framework every, you know, two minutes. And now it's there's a new state management library every two minutes, right? So so how does RxJS play into this idea of state management? And how does it make it easier? I think one of the important things to know about RxJS in relation to state management is several of the state management libraries are built on RxJS. So the concepts in RxJS, things like behavior subjects and the and some of the operators just lend themselves really well 
to building something like a state management library. And the thing is, once you go and start to learn reactive programming, you can actually do pretty simple things with RxJS alone without these other libraries and be able to build your own tailored state management to the project that you're working on, to the team that you're working with. And in addition, though, it also really, really helps you when you do find yourself in a situation where you do want to use one of those third-party state management libraries like NGRX Store or NGXS um, and sort of similar things like that. So knowing how to manage state reactively with sort of the underlying technology really helps you understand the state management libraries that are built on RxJS. You, you get to know how they work. You can un just have a greater understanding of what it is that you're using. Very cool. So uh, can you give us some examples of some of the state libraries that are built on RxJS? Um, so Redux Observable and there's NGRX Store is also built on RxJS. I believe NGXS is built on RxJS. There may actually be more um, than that, honestly. Right. And so uh, do you use RxJS to integrate with some of these libraries as well? So, you know, when you put data in or pull data out or to communicate with it? Yeah. So for example, if you're using something like NGRX in an Angular application, then the state management library itself is built on RxJS and you would use RxJS to interface with it for, you know, sort of like managing subscriptions and things like that. So essentially then if, you know, if I'm connected to a WebSocket, I'm probably going to use something like RxJS to get the data and then put it into the, the state management library. And then as things change within the sort of the the main state state management store, then it has another observable that comes back out and the re everything else reacts to that. Yeah, I mean, there's different patterns being used by all of these different state management libraries. And that's one of the kind of neat things about the fact that they are appearing. There are so many of them because it's a really like a one size doesn't fit all situation. So, you know, you were talking about it used to be Every few minutes, there'd be another JavaScript framework. And now it's every few minutes, there's another state management library. But the underlying reason is because people are trying to solve different problems in different ways. And having everybody in the world use uh, like Redux or Flux pattern doesn't make sense for all teams. And the nice thing about just knowing how to manage state reactively on your own is that if none of the state libraries work for you, then you can make something at fairly low cost that will work for you. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense because yeah, most of state management is just reacting to changes, either coming in or, you know, coming out and having the DOM or anything else updates as reactions. That makes sense. Um, do you have any, so if somebody is looking for a solution because they can't find something that really works great for them, do you have any advice for people who might wind up rolling their own or partially rolling their own off of something that already exists? Yeah, so I proposed, I showed a couple of examples of ways that you can do it, like if you do want to roll your own. And so like if you look at sort of my slides of the recording for the talk, then you can see a couple of different examples, like one's using the scan operator to get the accumulated value that's being stored in the state and then the new value and uh, produce a new object based on that so that you have immutability and things like that. And then the other example sort of goes into how you might address something like optimistic updates with RxJS. 
But I think one of my key points too is that these are just examples. A lot of more people, I'm sure people smarter than me, have come up with really neat strategies to do this. And there there are a lot of articles on this online actually about using something like service with a subject, the different ways that you can use different types of subjects to to create an observable store and things like that. Nice. Well, I'm going to encourage people to go watch your talk. I'm sure there's a bunch more stuff there that uh, you went over. So uh, yeah, if people want to reach out though, if they have a question or something, what's the best way to do that? So my Twitter is probably the best way. I'm Kim Mida on Twitter and links to any of my other sites will be in my Twitter bio, but that's where I'm most active and most reachable. Good deal. Well, thanks, Kim. Thank you. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.